The following is a sermon from Faith Troy, a church located in Troy, Michigan. For more information and more audio and video content, go to www.faithtroy.org. Growing up, I always had this dream like that, that there would be music playing and stuff going on and the screens and lights fading up and like I'd walk out in front of people. But when I was growing up, it never involved me coming up to talk about Jesus or having a Bible in my hand. It was always, like in my mind, like when I'm in middle school, and if I'm being really honest, um, most of high school, in my mind, the dream was, was like that, that like Jordan music would start playing in the background and the announcer would be like, like, like that would happen to crowds going crazy. Like, like I remember being a, a teenager and being like at the Pistons game, and this is like embarrassing, but I'm saying it anyways. I don't know why. Um, but like I remember being at like Pistons game and the lights would be going and I'd get like chills, like one day that will be me. Um, and then we're, we're here. So, see, so sometimes though, the way you expect things to be and the way things turn out are very different, aren't they? Like sometimes what you imagine life will be like and the way that life actually is like, sometimes the way that you hope things are going to be and the way they actually turn out are way, way different. Like, and when this happens, and this isn't always, this isn't necessarily a bad thing, it's just, it's just reality. The things that we, the way we expect things to be is not always the way things actually are. And when that happens... When your expectations don't match reality, what it often will do is it will cause you to take a step back and look, all right, right, what was I expecting? And were those expectations misplaced? Were they bad expectations? Or or was I expecting something that actually wasn't even what I really wanted? And so it causes us to step back and and, and reevaluate. Like when it happens in a relationship, like if a relationship isn't the way we expected that relationship to always be, it will cause us to reevaluate, to ask, all right, what happened? Who said what? Who did what? Where did, where, did we, where, did, where did the misstep happen? And so it causes us to step back, to evaluate. Or if our job is not the way we expected our job to be, it causes us to ask certain questions. Like, what was I expecting? Or what were they expecting? Or where was the miscommunication? And so we reevaluate what happened. Now, now one of the things that is interesting when we read the scriptures... That idea of unmet expectations, we can see that theme running all throughout the scriptures. In the book of Exodus, this group of people called the Israelites. Moses sets them free from slavery. And one of the early, one of the first things that happens is they start complaining. They start complaining because freedom wasn't exactly what they expected freedom to be like. So they're not happy. Or, or, or Jesus, right? right the, like kind of central to our faith. When Jesus is born... The angels show up, and who do they tell who do they tell first? They tell the shepherds. Nobody expected the shepherds, lowly shepherds, would be the people who first hear about the birth of Jesus. And then when Jesus starts teaching, like crowds start coming and showing up because, because no one expected Jesus, that guy from Nazareth. Like, what does he have to say? And then he starts talking. And, and people hear Jesus and they say, All right, we've never heard a rabbi speak with that kind of authority. And then as he would travel, people would be healed. Some people who were healed in ways that nobody had ever seen before. Because this Jesus started to do things that nobody expected could be done. 
See, all throughout the scriptures we see these unmet expectations. And what it will do is it will cause us to take a step back and ask, all right, what really is God up to? Because sometimes what God is up to is not what we expect him to be up to. If you could turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 21. I want us to spend some time in the text as Jesus enters the city, the triumphal entry. If you're using the Bibles in front of you, it's on page 1,531. See, before we ever get to the betrayal, before we ever get to the arrest, before we get to the crucifixion, and before we ultimately get to the resurrection, it all starts with this event. This event that we call Palm Sunday. When Jesus enters into Jerusalem, it's Passover week. On his way, he passed through Jericho. He heals two blind men. And then right before, the text will tell us that Jesus goes to the Mount of Olives. Now, the Mount of Olives is actually where the prophet Zechariah said that the Lord would come from when he was about to deliver Israel from the nations that oppress it. Right? And so when Jesus shows up, right, this text is loaded with implications about who this Jesus is. Yet what we'll find when we press in, we'll see some things that people have some expectations. People have some ideas. Right? There's great fanfare. They're excited. There's a, it's, it's like a parade. Because they have an idea of what they think Jesus should be doing. And so I want to read this and see some of those expectations. And then when those expectations don't meet, match reality, what it can do is it can help us reevaluate. All right, who really is Jesus? And what really was Jesus up to? I'll begin in verse 1. It says, As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethpage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you'll find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, tell him that the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. This took place to fulfill What was spoken through the prophet, say to the daughter of Zion, see, your king comes to you gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt, placed their coats on them, and Jesus sat on them. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of them and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? The crowds answered, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. See, when we look at this text, I think it's important to consider... Like, if this is about the king showing up, if this is about triumph and victory, like, what happens between Sunday and Friday? Like, like if if this is the king's arrival and people are celebrating and people are exciting, like, what goes wrong? Why do things the rest of the week take a different turn? See, in the ancient world, triumphal entries are actually not that unusual of a thing. And so we, we're familiar of it with Jesus, but it's actually not uncommon in Jesus' day. And so, so think of it like a victory parade. 
Right? If, you, if, you, if you follow sports, right, when a, when a team wins the national championship, the city throws a parade. And, and, and so the team will go down the streets, and there are people in front of them, people behind them, people to the side of them, praising them, celebrating. Why? Because they won. Because they defeated the enemy. And so the city goes nuts because their team is here, and their team won. Right, think of it, if, if your team like, makes the final four, right? everybody rushes to the court, they, they celebrate, they praise the team, they cut down the nets. Why? Be, because they're victorious. Right? And so th- this would happen in Jesus' day when a king or a general entered a city that he conquered or if it was a city that, that belonged to him. And so somebody like Alexander the Great shows up. Right? People would be walking in front of him. People would be walking behind him, all around him, praising him. Even in history, one of the things that these, these, these leaders would do when they show up, right? all this great fanfare happens, then they would head to the local temple to correct the abuses. Which when we read the story of Jesus, what, what, where does he go right after this Palm Sunday entry? He heads to correct the abuses in the temple. And so what Jesus does is very familiar and so when Jesus shows up, it looks and it sounds oddly familiar to other people. It looks like what, what should happen when a king shows up. It's loud and people are waving branches and shouting because, because there must be victory. But if we look a little bit closer, as this parade is happening and people are shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, which means save us. It sounds like victory, but if we look closer... There are some elements of this that are not exactly what you'd expect in a victory parade. Because Jesus' triumphal entry looks more like failure than victory. Take the, the donkey, for example. See, when a great king would come into the city, he does not come on a donkey. But, 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 right, the, the great leaders would come in, they would come in on a war horse. They would come in in their chariots. Yet Jesus chooses a donkey instead of a stallion. See, the victory parade of a great king, right, they're showing that they're dominant, so they have their chariots, they have people in front and behind, but why would the supposed king in this moment show up on a donkey? Like, well, wh- why? And as Jesus approaches the city, right, if this is about triumph, why does Luke record that Jesus cried as he approached the city? Like, that's not exactly an emotion of triumph, and consider, when Jesus gets crucified, there are two groups of people that want Jesus crucified. There are the, the, there are the Jewish people. They want Jesus crucified because of, of blasphemy. The Romans want Jesus crucified because they believe he's a threat. He's a political threat. Yet when Jesus shows up as a king, why are the Romans not crucifying him in that moment? Like, are the Romans there watching Jesus show up as king, and, they, and, they, and they're like, oh, oh no, the king's showing up, we'd better pay attention. And then they see Jesus, and he's on a donkey, and they're like, Psh, forget about that. Because there, there's something about what Jesus does, like maybe a donkey is just not very intimidating. See, at first glance, it sounds like triumph and victory, but if you look closer, it looks like failure. He's certainly not the kind of king that anybody would expect. And if they want somebody who's going to save them, if they want somebody who's going to free them from their oppressors, the donkey's not marching in and scaring anybody. This Jesus is not the one who's going to lead them into battle. Yet oddly, at the same time, it's clear that Jesus knew what he was doing. He, He intentionally chose 
the donkey. He intentionally went to the temple. And so maybe he is the king. But what's clear is that this king does not meet our expectations. Now when we continue in Matthew, when Matthew is recording all that is going on, he references the words of the prophet, prophet Zechariah. Now, now when, when, when Zechariah records um, some words about, about the freedom that Israel would experience, he actually writes some important things. Now, now Matthew actually o- only quotes one particular verse. But for any of his hearers, when he would recite that verse, they would know the context. They would know the things that came before, the things that came after. And so I want to read to you a bit of of what Matthew quotes from Zechariah chapter 9. Zechariah writes, he says, Never again will an oppressor overrun my people. For now I am keeping watch. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you. Righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will take away the chariots from Ephraim, the war horses from Jerusalem. The battle bow will be broken. He will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea and from river to the ends of the earth. See, the prophet is making it clear that they should rejoice. There's no question that, that he wants people to have in their mind. And when Matthew records this, he wants people to understand, right, the king is coming. This Jesus who showed up on a donkey, he is the king. He's the king who people have been talking about, the king who people have been waiting for. And never again will people have to be oppressed As he continues, right, he he points out some important things that run counter to the expectations of the people. See, people have ideas of some of the things that kings should do. And when a king comes comes in Jesus' day, and they're going to free people from oppression, they're going to come and start a battle. But what Zechariah tells us is that this king is going to be different. He will take away the chariots. He will take away the war horses. The battle bows will be broken. And he will proclaim peace to the the nations. See, perhaps some of the people understand the idea that a king is coming, but they left out part of it, that this king is coming to bring in peace. And that peace that he wants to bring, Zechariah says it's for all the nations. That this is not just for some people, but he says it's from sea to sea, for all people in all places. And so for the people rejoicing... Maybe some of them realize who this Jesus is, but for many of them, they're expecting a different kind of king. They're expecting power and authority. They're expecting chariots and war horses. They're not expecting sacrifice. They're expecting slaughter. They're not expecting to, in a few days, watch their hero be executed. They're not expecting to watch a king die. They're expecting Jesus to be more like King David. After all, he is the, he's the son of David. And so they're expecting him to be this great warrior king. David fought and destroyed Israel's enemies. He was a warrior king. He freed them. And so they're expecting this Jesus to fight for peace. 
Which perhaps this is why only a few days later when they realize he's not who they were hoping he would be. Maybe that's why so many of them quickly turn. Calling for his death because he just wasn't who they were hoping he would be. Now there's one other element to this triumphal entry that I I think is very interesting when we understand the first century world of Jesus. And it's a reminder that, that sometimes when God shows up and God's at work, it's not always the way we expect him to be working. And so, and so this, these people, as they're there in the crowd, they're quoting the Psalms, saying that, that this is, they're celebrating him who comes in the name of the Lord. They're using these words like Hosanna, which means God save us. Now what is so interesting though, and we don't always like this kind of thing, but there's a political edge to what Jesus is saying, to what Jesus is doing in this moment. See, there, there's this, this rub, and this happens time and time again in the scripture. And it's not like political in the sense that we would necessarily mean it, but there are political leaders in Jesus' day, right? The Roman authorities. And so when, when people who follow Jesus would say something like, Jesus is Lord, that that's a, has a political edge because other people said Caesar is Lord. And so in Jesus' day, the same thing is happening when Jesus enters as this kind of king. And so people would use this language, Hosanna, Hosanna, which is certainly a scriptural and appropriate response to those who are following Jesus. But in the first century, Hosanna was also a nationalistic cry. right? And so people would actually use this language, Hosanna, Hosanna, not as the humble cry for God to save it, but it would be the language that you would use if you believe you had God in your back pocket. Right, it would be the language you used if you believed that God was following your agenda. And so when Jesus shows up, they believe that Jesus is the political leader who is going to overthrow Rome. And so they're saying, Hosanna, Hosanna, because they believe they got Jesus in their back pocket. And they're going to take him and march him right into Rome. And everything's going to be different. See, they have some expectations. And so certainly some meant Hosanna, like God save us, referring to the Messiah. But many had something far different than what God intended. See, for for us as Christians, it could be, we we could think of parallel examples. For for example, as a Christian, there's a humble prayer we could pray when we say God bless America, right? Because for a Christian, as we follow Jesus, we we pray for God's blessings. And we thank God that he's blessed America. We thank him that he's blessed our communities, our families, that he's given us freedoms. We pray that he continues those freedoms. Yet for some, it can be twisted and co-opted, can it? That it can be co-opted to be this, this idea that we have God in our back pocket. And so, and so we, can, we can use that to say that God's following my agenda, that God's following my lead. That it can be twisted and used for our own agenda. It's this, this, this belief that, that, and sometimes you'll even hear Christians like refer to it, that America's the chosen nation, or America's the city on a hill. But that's not what the Bible teaches. The, the Bible teaches that the church is the city on a hill. The church is the new Israel. And so what we see as Christians, for us, as we follow Jesus, Jesus is a different kind of king. In the kingdom he's building, he's not building a nation, he's building a kingdom. 
He's building the kingdom. See, kings come to build nations. Kings side with their nation no matter what. Kings work to make sure that their nation is great. Kings fight to kill the outsiders. They favor the insiders. But when Jesus shows up to these politically loaded cries, he doesn't care what they want. He cares what they need. He doesn't care what their agenda is. He cares what the agenda of his father is. He doesn't come to build a nation. He comes to build the kingdom of God. On Palm Sunday, Jesus arrives to a crowd that wants so badly for Jesus to make Israel great. But when he doesn't meet their expectations a few days later, they call for his blood. Israel calls for the death of Jesus. Right, because Jesus isn't the political leader that they wanted. He's saying things that they weren't comfortable with. And Rome starts calling for, for Jesus' death because they start to be threatened to him. Which just shows us that when, when you're Jesus and when you're building the kingdom of God, sometimes you're not meeting people's expectations. But when, it, when you are doing your work, the work that the Father sent him to do, it may not meet people's expectations, but it's exactly what people need. And so knowing that, the question for us as the church, as God's chosen people, whose kingdom do you want to build? As you follow Jesus, whose kingdom are you trying to build? Are you trying to build your kingdom? Is it about your authority, your influence? Whose kingdom? Because when Jesus comes, he's a different kind of king. And for the Israelites, this is a challenge, right? They are the chosen people. But suddenly they realize that God's had something bigger in mind all along. That he's for the nations. That he's for all people. See, Jesus isn't a warrior king. The only war he goes to is the war against sin, death, and the devil. And Jesus isn't an arrogant king. He would soon die a humble death. And he's not a nation-building king because he invites the outsiders into the kingdom. And so all of this happens, and the city is stirred. The city's in an uproar, and they start calling for Jesus' death because they expected a stallion, not a donkey. Because they expected slaughter of their enemy, not for their hero to be sacrificed. They expected to build and restore a nation, not the kingdom of God. He's not who anyone was expecting. And so they answer that question, who is this, as the city is stirred, and say, this is Jesus. The prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. Which isn't wrong, but he's so much more. Peter would tell us that that this this Jesus, he's the Christ, the son of the living God. And he has come to rescue you and invite you into his kingdom. No matter how far from God you feel like you are, no matter how distant you feel like you've become, no matter how bad you feel like you've screwed things up, Jesus comes to rescue you. To invite you into this upside down kingdom of love and grace and mercy and sacrifice. And then for us as a church, that means he's also called us to be a part of this kingdom. 
And as a part of this kingdom, he then sends us out to build the kingdom. And so my question for you is, who is God sending you to? Because when God sends us, sometimes he sends us to people with a message that people aren't expecting. And sometimes he sends us to people who aren't like us, which is usually most people, right? Most people aren't exactly like us. And so he sends us to people who maybe don't think like we do, or they don't believe the things that we do. Maybe they don't look like you do or act like you do. Maybe they sin in different ways than you do, right? And so Jesus sends you to those people. To surprise those people with love and grace and mercy. To invite them in. Who is God sending you to? Because maybe there is somebody that God has placed in your life that they would never expect you to have that conversation with them. Like, like maybe there's somebody in your life who, who God is sending you to that they would never expect to be for, for you to invite them to church. But what if God was about doing what nobody expected? And what if he would be at work in that moment? See, when Jesus does this, it creates a stir in the city. Because when Jesus shows up, it makes people furious. And in the midst of fury, it appears to be failure, but it's actually victory. See, in the kingdom of God, winning looks like losing. Winning looks like losing in the kingdom of God. It looks like failure. It looks like death. But we know that Jesus is actually winning. A friend of mine once described what it would be like if, if you were the public relations manager for Jesus. Right? Like, can, can you imagine that? Like, Jesus, we can, we can read all throughout the scriptures. And there are plenty of times where we'd be like, all right, Jesus, if you want to build this Christianity thing, you probably should cut some of those parts out. Right, like, there are parts where he says, oh, you want to follow me? Well, take up your cross and die. Like, that's a good, like, church growth method, right? And, and so it's like, Je- like, Jesus, there's some things, like, maybe you shouldn't do. Um, but, but, like, for example, Jesus is the king of the Jews, right? And so the, king, the, the Jews hated the money-hungry tax gougers. Jesus marches right up to the money-hungry tax gougers and invites them to follow him. Like, that, that's not good. Like, that's, like, if you're trying to build a small group, you don't pick the people who are going to hate each other. And, and then if that's not bad enough, he, he also welcomes the equivalent of, like, the, the domestic terrorists into his inner circle. Like, when Jesus invites a zealot to follow him, like, what's he thinking? Like, like what, does Jesus not have a background check when, when he's picking his followers? Jesus hung out with those who were heretics. He hung out with those who worked in the sex trade. He hung out with lepers. And if that wasn't bad enough, when he got around religious people, like the influential people, those were the people he insulted. See, from a public figure perspective, Jesus was a public embarrassment. From a career perspective, Jesus was a failure. From a religious perspective, Jesus was a troublemaker. From a street perspective, Jesus was dancing with death. From a public relations perspective, Jesus was a train wreck. Jesus was a failure at being who people wanted him to be. He didn't meet the expectations of the people who saw him. Jesus wasn't who they wanted him to be, but he was who he needed to be. From the perspective of God the Father, 
Jesus was exactly who he was supposed to be. He made the right sacrifices. He loved the right people. He gave hope to the hurting when they need it. He risked his life. He laid down his life just like he'd been asked. He spoke the hard truth when it was needed. He touched the lepers when no one else would. He complimented the prostitutes and insulted the priests. Jesus. The Christ, the son of the living God. The king that nobody expected. He looked a lot like a loser. But that was exactly who he needed to be when no one expected him to be. And it's in losing it all that Jesus invites us into his kingdom. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that you are not only a king, but you are the kind of king that we would never have expected. A king who comes humbly. A king who comes sacrificing. A king who comes not just for a select few, but who comes for all the nations. God, we are here as people who know we don't deserve it. As people who maybe have run from it. Maybe as people who have given up on it. Or maybe even as people who who know it. But often forget how profound it is that you are king. And you invite us into your kingdom. And so, Jesus, as we pray to you and as we sing to you, Hosanna, and God saves us, save us, and as we worship you, may we worship you as people who are clinging with desperation to your love and sacrifice to follow your lead, not to ask you to follow 